This is the Athletic Football Show. Welcome to the Athletic Football Show. Today is Tuesday, November 16th. I'm Robert Mays. Joining me today is my good friend Mitchell Schwartz. Mitch, how you doing, buddy? I'm doing well. How are you? I'm doing well. We have a little bit of a schedule change here. Just laying it out for people. We were looking at how the show was going over the course of the year, and we wanted to kind of give you a little bit more real estate. And so over the next few weeks, over the back half of the season, there are going to be some weeks where you're going to be on Tuesdays. Sometimes we're going to do the normal show that we would have on Wednesdays with you. Sometimes we're going to sprinkle in some mailbag questions. And in today's case, we're just going to do the entire show as a mailbag. So I know that could be a little bit kind of disorienting for some listeners that enjoy the routine, but we just thought this was the best way for everyone to get the full experience of what we wanted to get them to have on the show. So over the next couple weeks, you're actually going to be coming to us on Tuesdays. So we certainly appreciate your flexibility because I think that this is going to work out really well. No problem. All I'm hearing is I'm like six weeks away from taking Nate's uh, role Sunday night and then I'll be right <laughs> in there with you. Uh, <laughs> no, this is this will be a lot of fun and I'm enjoying uh Obviously, chatting with you and enjoy that people are uh, having fun with it as well. So, as always, guys, thank you very much for submitting the questions. Every single week, we have too many to use. I wish I could get to all of them. It's just not realistic. But the re- the reason we do this is because the questions are always so good and so thoughtful. So, let's get to them. First one here. This is a good one. Holden Zeidman says he saw a tweet about this question and he thought it'd be interesting to hear our takes on it. Who is the worst current NFL quarterback who, with the perfect situation, great alliance, skill position players, running game, coaching, etc., could put up MVP-like numbers? For example, think maybe a 2017 Carson Wentz situation. So in your mind, Mitch, who is the worst starting quarterback in the NFL who could win the MVP in the perfect conditions? I mean, isn't Jared Goff the test case? Like <laughs> That pretty much already <laughs> happened. I mean, obviously, it was Super Bowl, not MVP, but like... We saw him in, I would say, not even the perfect situation, but like a very good situation, and they almost won the Super Bowl. So uh, he's one of the lesser quarterbacks at the moment. You know, he hasn't quite had the the year that he wanted uh, away from McVay. So I would imagine like 30 of them could do a pretty good job. Um, but like we've seen it when a quarterback's in a perfect situation and like they have a clean pocket and guys are open and they're playing with dudes who ball out, like they all look good. Like they're all good quarterbacks. They all look good in the right situation. Like Andy Dalton, everyone hates him now. Well, when he had like Sanu and AJ green and was it Marvin Jones? Marvin Jones. Yeah. And they had a couple of tight ends who were awesome. The O-line was fantastic. He was like one of the better quarterbacks and they went to the playoffs every year. And like, yeah, maybe they lost the first game, but like all these quarterbacks look good in the right situation. So there's really not a quarterback starting that, I would kind of say, eh, I just really don't trust it. Like, again, Garoppolo went to the Super Bowl, almost He's the other really good example for me. I think that Goff is the best example. That's a really good one and the one I should have thought of first. Because if you look at those 2017-2018 Rams, especially the 2017 Rams, they led the league in scoring. I mean, there is absolutely a world where he could have won the MVP that year if they had won enough games. And Garoppolo, I mean, if he had played 16 games for any long stretch for that Niners team and their defense had been good. That's another good one. But I think Goff 
is the best example for a quarterback when you take him out of those circumstances, what he's looked like. And in the right circumstances, he led one of the most explosive dynamic offenses in the entire league. I admittedly have not dug deep on the Lions offense this year. (laughs) My experience of catching what Jared Goff has done has been in small snippets of games and at looking at some of the numbers. I think I might put the hazmat suit on and just really dig in there over the next couple weeks. Because if you look at some of the numbers, it's incredible. Like how short the passes are that they're attempting. Listen, Khalif Raymond is the number one receiver on that team right now. Him and Amon Ross St. Brown in some combination. So it's not all Jared Goff's fault. But I think that what we've seen with the switch between Jared Goff and Matthew Stafford and what the Rams offense looks like with the latter I think it makes him a really good example in what we're talking about here. Yeah, well, yesterday's game, I was tweeting during the game because it was just pure carnage and I was enjoying it. Uh, I have no embarrassment there. Uh, It was just really fun to watch and it was bad football. It was bad football on both sides. And sometimes you just need like a palate cleanser to wipe the slate clean. And, you know, I was getting ready for, for Chiefs Raiders at night and it was ugly, man. It was really bad. I know the weather was bad and it was raining, but like we've seen plenty of games in the rain where quarterbacks can make do. It seems like Dan Campbell kind of took over play calling apparently. And it's weird because he's been praised for being like very analytics driven in his fourth down decisions and kind of overall game management. And so if that's the case and that's how he wants to call an offense, it was like the most vanilla run on first down, run on second down, screen on third down. Like I don't trust my quarterback. We're clearly not going to throw the ball. Like I'm going to run the ball, short passes, wide receiver screens. Like they started the two minute drive at the end of the fourth quarter. There's like a minute 30 left against Pittsburgh's defense at like, you know, the minus 20, minus 25 yard line. And they're running like outside zone from shotgun. <laughs> like they're just running <laughs> normal stuff. They weren't even attempting to throw the ball. And then they ran that. And then it was like second and whatever, six. And then they threw like a wide receiver screen that was caught behind the line. And it's like, this is your drive to go win the game. And you still don't trust your quarterback to even push it downfield. So. I don't know if it was the weather, if it was he just tends towards being that more like physical run game, you know, shorter play action screen stuff, or if they've just completely lost trust in him. But yeah, their their offense isn't um, isn't clicking right now, I would say. And I kind of just hope you do a deep dive because I'd love to hear your thoughts on it after the fact. I think that's going to happen sometime over the next couple of weeks. It's just hard to justify with how many good teams there are and how many interesting things are happening. Okay, what's going on with the Lions? It is important to gauge as we move forward. Like Jared Goff is owed $30 million next year. What are the Lions going to do? Is he going to be their quarterback next season as they kind of move into the next stage of this? All worthwhile questions. They are one of the 32 franchises. I just have not gotten to it quite yet because there's a little bit too much to chew on here over the first half of the year. Okay, Goff for Darnold. Who says no? <laughs> <laughs> but that's This is a larger conversation that I almost don't want to get into right now, but that's why them going out and getting Jared Goff was so confusing to me. If you're just trying to have someone to be a placeholder for the next couple years, why would you want a $30 million placeholder that you're going to do everything you can to marginalize in the way that you construct your offense? Like it just never made sense to me. Well, that's not, I don't think that's, to me, this is like a basketball trade where you have to like add the salary to then get the first rounder back. And maybe that was worth it for them, yeah. but that's a lot to take on. I mean, if that, it's not just this year, it's also next year. And then what they have to do with him. Uh, part of me probably thinks they heard two first round picks, thought, oh, we could deal with Jared Goff for a year. And also Brad Holmes knew him. 
there's a familiarity there. They were all about creating culture, and they knew, he knew what Jared was like in the building. I'm sure they talked themselves into it in a lot of different ways, but now I'm sure it sounded a lot better than it looks right now as they're staring at that number, and they have to figure out what year two of this very strange, very in-depth rebuild is going to look like. Well, you're looking at pick one and maybe pick like 31 or 32. So it's weirdly like, you know, I don't think they expected to be winless at this point. And I would imagine they thought Goff was still a competent quarterback and probably better than what we've seen this year. Again, going back to like the surroundings, I think it's heavily influenced by that. But they probably thought, all right, you know, maybe we don't make the playoffs. We get a pick like eight through 12 range. Rams make the playoffs. You know, Stafford has not really had playoff success. So maybe they get bounced in the first round or two. And we have, you know, the 10th pick and the 23rd pick this year. And that looks pretty good. And, you know, they're going to go ahead. But like, again, in the weird way, if you're going to lose the, if you're going to not make the playoffs, you might as well just be awful and kind of know like, all right, we just need a clean house. And this doesn't seem to be the draft to have the number one overall pick if you're looking for a quarterback. On the flip side, it is the right situation in the NFL to have the number one pick and one or two extra first rounders to go get a Rodgers or a Wilson or if the Watson situation ever, you know, gets resolved. Like potentially there's an avenue where because they have the number one overall pick at the moment, you know, they've got that situation. And then the thing I was thinking when you were talking is like all the bad team or all the good teams have had a clunker or two like buffalo's had two really bad games obviously the chiefs have been going through struggles like the ravens just had that awful loss you would think a bad team could have a, a good win every now and again i mean jacksonville has a couple houston had one but like it just hasn't happened for him if i were them though this to me is the mistaken evaluation they should have thought they were going to win no games if i were looking well. <laughs> at that roster and i was considering where i wanted to go and how Winning one or two games this year would have been part of the plan. The only team in the NFL that would compete with me to be the worst team just in terms of overall talent would have been Houston. But I I think that you probably should have thought we're going to have one of the top two picks in the draft. The golf part of this never made sense on its face. I'm sure there is some complicating factor with the pick and taking on the contract that they ultimately made that bargain with themselves, but it was always a little bit confusing to me. All right, we're going to have plenty of time for Lions deep dives here over the next half of the season. Let's get to our first voicemail. Hey, Robert. Spencer here. Uh, I was wondering how much of the Pats' improvement on offense do you think just comes down to the O-line finally getting healthy? Trent Brown looked like he made a huge difference today. Thanks. Love the show. Keep doing a great job. I wanted to address this question because me and Nate talked about Mac Jones a lot on the show last night. And one point that I thought I missed that was definitely worth bringing up is where the gaps are between the situation that Mac Jones is in right now and the situation that some of these other younger quarterbacks are in. And I know that the Patriots offensive line was unsettled early in the year, right? Trent Bowen was hurt. Isaiah Wynn wasn't playing great. On Wenu, who'd been so good for them as a rookie, was kind of shifting in and out of the lineup and still is. But I do think that if you look at what the line looked like yesterday and how great the protection was and what it allowed them to do down the field, that to me is a consideration because when they were unsettled, there was all this dinking and dunking they were doing. Now that the protection is as good as it was yesterday, that Brent, Trent Brown is giving them that presence physically on the right side, the way they were able to run the ball, I do think that is a huge difference between what their offense looks like for the first month of the year and I do think if you look at the situations of every young quarterback that's the biggest gap it's not necessarily the play calling or the receiving talent because the receiving talent in New England is not great 
But right now, that group he played with yesterday, that is easily the best offensive line that a rookie quarterback this year gets to play with. So you don't think if you switched uh, him and Fields, <laughs> Fields would be lighting it up there? Yeah, I mean, that's that's the thing, right? It's He's in a great situation. Like, obviously, offensive line matters. That's not even me as an offensive lineman saying it. Like, it's very apparent that pressure and getting hit and getting sacked has a huge impact on the quarterback. I mean, we go back to last year's Super Bowl, what won Tampa Bay the game, the fact that the front four could get to the quarterback. And then, you know, there was the graph of Tom Brady in the pocket and he was from seven and a half to eight and a half yards deep and no more than a foot in any direction all game. And Mahomes has like 500 yards run behind the line of scrimmage just trying to (laughs) evade guys like that has an impact. You know, we talked early in the year about Derek Carr and, you know, Bosa subsequently had some, you know, things to say about Carr a little bit more pointedly than I had, but you know, he's a different guy when he gets hit, when he's feeling pressure, a lot of quarterbacks are different guys when they get hit, when they're feeling pressure. And so if, if an offensive line can establish some level of trust for the quarterback early in the game, then he can feel it. He can stay in the pocket. He gets in that rhythm. You know, maybe in the second or third quarter, he takes a shot once or twice. But, okay, well, these guys are doing well. I took a shot. I still completed it. You know, it's not first quarter, third pass of the game. Oh, I get hit. You know, fifth pass. Oh, I get hit. And now he's thinking like, oh, now I got to start, you know, peeking my eyes down. I got to look for the pressure. So there's like the subconscious kind of comfortability. And then there's the conscious like, all right, are they going to protect for me? Do I have to look at them? You know, is my mental attention no longer down the field? Is it to the guys in front of me? And that does make a really big difference. And, you know, to, to PFF's credit, you know, people can debate whether they know what to look for and stuff. But for quarterbacks, they're big on how does a quarterback throw from a clean pocket? Because yeah. that's the most stable situation. If a quarterback is lighting it up from a clean pocket, you know, above his, you know, expected rate, you know, that shows you that the guy's a good player. And again, that goes to the situation. If the situation allows for good pockets, you know, you want the guy who's going to be elevated compared to his peers. And so trying to judge a guy like Fields, who's playing behind a subpar offensive line, who doesn't have a chance to get into that rhythm to build that trust to let things develop down the field. It's tough to give, you know, full quarterback uh, evaluation. So yeah, the, the offensive line being healthy, looking like they did against a pretty good Cleveland defensive line too. Let's not, yeah. uh, you know, I think people are saying, oh, you know, New England played well and Trent Brown was back and stuff, but like it was against great competition too. So that's a really good thing for New England. And if you guys haven't watched Trent Brown ever and you're not really someone who looks at offensive linemen, New England, right tackle, huge dude. You're going to see him. <laughs> you're going to know what he looks like. He is so fun to watch because there's no one else like him. And he makes the game look as easy as I've ever seen. I remember when he went to Oakland and it was the year after he was in New England, he signed that big contract with the Raiders and it was at their training camp in Napa. And I was talking to him, I think about Dante Scarnecchia and I walked up to him and I've been around NFL players, spent time in NFL locker rooms. I have never seen a person that looks like that. He is the biggest dude I have ever seen in the context of an NFL setting. Like it was absolutely ridiculous. Yeah, he's like a legit six nine and a half, six ten. He's I don't know anywhere from three sixty to three eighty five, or potentially over four hundred. Like who knows? He's a huge dude. You know, at the O line masterminds thing a few years ago, I remember Trent was talking about what he does, how he pass sets and uses his hands and all this stuff. And I think it was Cam Robinson was like Trent, like we don't got what you have. Like <laughs> what do you recommend for the rest of us? It's like, you know, he's six ten, four hundred. Like he can do stuff different. He doesn't have to use his hands. He can sit on bull rushes. Like that's just a different human. You don't see people like that. And so 
yeah, he's uh, he's really fun to watch. Obviously, he's had a little bit of injury uh, history the past few years, but it seems like he's always played his best ball when he's healthy in, in New England. So good to uh, you know see him back and obviously solidifying that offensive line. He was just washing the right side of the line down yesterday. When they were running the ball to that side, him and Mason, when they would double team yesterday, it was disgusting. They were getting incredible movement over there, and you could see it in the run game, and it was showing up the entire game. I wanted to ask you, they were rotating him and Unwenu yesterday at right tackle. What do you think about that as a plan? I've always been interested in why offenses choose to do that. I think it's probably a situation where they didn't think he was ready to maybe play 75 plays and they wanted to give him a breather. Is that difficult? Like the mechanics of it have always just been a little bit strange for me to have a firm grasp on. Yeah, I'd imagine it's conditioning based and Again, he's 6'10", 400 and coming off a calf injury. <laughs> Although, he, I mean, he looked like he was in pretty good shape. You know, we've seen him at different, you know, body shapes throughout the years. And he looked like he was in really good shape. And again, I don't know specifically what that number is. I know his listed weight is 360 or 370 or something. But he's it's, it's got to be conditioning based. <laughs> like that and you just don't think, you know, you can play 70 plays total. And, you know, at this point in the season, there's only so much conditioning you can do that's football related. You know, that's kind of the point of training camp is you're able to practice for two and a half hours and you're able to you know put all the stress in your body you do it three or four days in a week and be in pads a bunch and you build up you know this resistance this load and it kind of carries you through the season and once you get into the season and practices are you know two hours you're only wearing pads once a week and things are just you know at a much lesser level it's a little bit tough to get conditioning in when you're not playing you know sunday is the highest intensity day that is like the peak of your conditioning and so when you're missing that and you can't you know be a full participant in practice it makes it tough and i'm not a huge fan of rotating but you know again if that's what you need to keep the guy healthy and you know you get 45 snaps out of him rotating versus you know 26 snaps on another injury and he's out for another month then yeah i, I understand that and you know i'd like to think new england is a, a pretty good grasp on kind of the, the sports medicine and what that guy needs and he's been there a couple times and you know, they don't have uh, a certain quarterback's health guru there. So maybe they had to outsource some more medical uh, <laughs> ability. But uh, no, they, they they have a plan. Obviously, it worked. They're sticking to it. I'd imagine as, you know, the weeks progress, maybe next week he's full go or maybe, you know, one drive per half that he gets off. And um, he's shown his value. Like him on the field is a market difference for New England. And yeah. so much like kind of load management in a basketball game or all right tonight we're only playing lebron 28 minutes instead of 38 like this is kind of a load management type situation on you know an nfl offensive line basis which you just don't really see looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone luckily with 24 7 us-based live customer service from discover everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime day or night yep you heard that right you can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Don't just ride the index. Seek to outperform it with Fidelity Active ETFs. Learn more at fidelity.com slash active ETFs. Before investing in any exchange-traded fund, you should consider its investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Contact Fidelity for a prospectus, an offering circular, or if available, a summary prospectus containing this information. Read it carefully. While active ETFs offer the potential to outperform an index, these products may more significantly trail an index as compared with passive ETFs. Fidelity Brokerage Services, LLC, member NYSE, SIPC. 
All right, let's get to our next voicemail, which delves into a topic that I want to explore here a little bit. Hey, Robert. So I listened to your guys' comment about Mike Zimmer and just sort of the feeling you had about the Vikings that no matter how well things had gone, they it was just time for change. And I was, as a Seahawks fan, thinking about Pete Carroll and now after a shutout in uh, Green Bay, it's hard not to feel like, you know, no matter what, no matter how unfortunate things might have been, no matter how the Pete Carroll era has been a unparalleled one in terms of success, that it just might be time for it to end. Thoughts? So this is related to another question that we got from Mike Cackley, who said, Last week, you and Nate talked about the Vikings possibly moving on from Zimmer in the offseason to try to change things up after years of mediocrity. Isn't this essentially the logic the Lions used in moving on from Jim Caldwell? That decision led to the Matt Patricia era, and now, thus far, a winless season. If you were a fan, would you rather have a team that's always respectable but never a contender, or take a shot at maybe breaking through, even if it risks becoming an absolute disaster? I think these questions are obviously intertwined, right? You have these eras that have been, at times, the highest highs. The Seahawks were the best team in football for four to five years. They have one Super Bowl to show for it, but they were utterly dominant for a stretch. They shaped an entire decade of the way that we played defense in the NFL. With the Vikings, you have a team that consistently competed to be in the playoffs, consistently was one of the best defenses in the league, had a couple years where they were a true blue Super Bowl contender. Now, they've fallen back to the middle of the pack, and the question becomes, well, do we want to move on from that stability? And I'm wondering, as somebody who's been in the league, how you think about this, how you think about the idea of kind of toiling in one area and being one of the also rands, just hoping you eventually break through, or if it's work, worth getting off of that treadmill in its entirety and starting over and just getting new voices in the building, because I can understand both arguments. So to get back to our discussion on you know quarterbacks and needing the right situation and stuff, I feel like this is kind of the head coach parallel and Zimmer in particular, uh, you know, obviously Carroll had the success, the dominance, you know, he's a little bit in a different situation than Zimmer, but the Rams, the 49ers, the bears, like the reason you go get these quarterbacks is because you want a top five guy. You want to be a team with one of the best quarterbacks in the NFL every single year. Know you're making the playoffs, have a good idea. You're making it deep into your conference and potentially go win the Super Bowl. And that's kind of what we're looking at with Zimmer. Like he's a Garoppolo. He's a Goff right now. Like that's a guy who can give you a decent enough, um, you know, kind of floor, but he doesn't really give you the ceiling. And so you want to, you know, especially as a fan, you want to replace it with a head coach who can get you to the Super Bowl, that can win the Super Bowl. And so I'm all for that. I'm against like firing a guy and just hiring the opposite because that's what the team needs. Like, I think you see a lot, and this was a Joe Thomas thing. He went through a lot of hirings and firings. Um, <laughs> but essentially, you know, teams tend to hire the opposite of what they just hired. So, you know, Jim Caldwell is kind of a quiet guy, you know, leader by, you know, example. And then, you know, theoretically, you hire Patricia, who's boisterous and, you know, fiery and, and going to rally the guys. Um, you know, but typically you go from a player's coach, a quote unquote player's coach to, you know, a guy that the players don't necessarily love is more of a disciplinarian. And then that gets old. So you go back to being a player's coach and you kind of go back and forth on that. In the Zimmer situation, like if the team thinks it's time to move on and, you know, it seems like in terms of ability as a coach, he's kind of met his match with his quarterback. Like they're both kind of, you know, similar in their slots and relative to the league. So that is kind they of really a funny are. pairing. I know. So uh, 
they're entrenched. They're entrenched in those spots in the hierarchy. It really does feel like that. Yeah. And, you know, I would imagine most fans are kind of done with it. They want something fresh. They want something new. And even if it's just hope, I mean, half the reason teams fire guys is because the hope for something better, like you want to fire a guy knowing there's a better candidate out there. That's not always the case. I mean, sometimes there's seven, eight guys fired. There's not you know, seven or eight quality NFL head coaches waiting out there. We'd like to think there are, but, you know, seems like another seven or eight get fired every year. So they're not always out there. And I would want them to turn the page and just kind of look towards getting their own like Pete Carroll, who can have this five to seven year run of sustained excellence. You know, when you're a team whose floor is 11 or 12 wins in a 16 game season and you're going to the conference championships every year and you want a Super Bowl, like that's a much different situation. I would imagine for like Seattle specifically, I think everyone just wants Pete to have like a modern game day thinker on staff. Like no one is saying he's lost the team or his message isn't working or, you know, all those things don't work anymore. For him, it's just like stop relying on defense and punting and running the ball so much and kind of go towards a more modern line of thought. And maybe like that's literally the thing holding them back. And so for coaches, it's like, have you lost the locker room? And kind of have you lost the organization? And if the answer is yes, I mean, it's, it's clearly time to move on. How many coaches did you go through in Cleveland? Uh, three. Did, was there any of those that you thought, why are we doing this? Like, what, what are we accomplishing by switching this up? Or did you feel like all of them were justifiable in the moment? No, they were, they were justifiable. Uh, <laughs> you know, I... I uh, <laughs> Well, so I, I got there in 2012 and it was Pat Shermer's second year and we started out 0 and 6 and we went like 3 and 13 or 4 and 12 and it was the second straight year of, you know, not doing so well. That was also the year that Jimmy Haslam bought the team and took over. So you kind of know that like the head coach has had two years. The team's not really looking any better. It's a new owner. He wants to clean house. He's going to hire his own guys and, you know, kind of stabilize things. So that was the case. That made sense. The next year we had Rob Chazinski and he got fired after one year. That one kind of made sense to me too. Um, you know, he, uh, I'd say he hasn't really gotten a shot to be another head coach, you know, um, so it wasn't my favorite. And then we hired Mike Pettin, who got two years and there was a little bit of signs of life, especially the year Kyle Shanahan was our offensive coordinator. But the next year we regressed and didn't look so good and so you know the team decided it was time to move on from you know him and the gm and stuff so they all made sense and you know it was just this isn't working i mean it's more difficult i think to fire a guy after one year than it is to you know kind of wait another year or two and try to make sure you know you're not doing it too prematurely like firing the guy after the year is just all right we screwed up this is the wrong situation you know we need to find someone better and i think as players, you kind of respect that more instead of, you know, letting a guy be a lame duck or just like, well, he's under contract for five years and we don't want to pay for them. So we're going to, uh, you know, kind of just ride it out with him. I also think something to consider with the Zimmer Caldwell comparison is that Zimmer's been there for eight years. You know, there has been a trajectory up and then on this way back down and then plateauing or even still on a steady decline. Jim Caldwell was only there for four years and they were winning at a much higher clip than they had with that organization in a long, long time. So I feel like that had really not had a chance to play out in the same way. Where with the Zimmer situation, I mean, that like 2016, 17, 
stretch where they were the best defense in the league, where they had this young core of truly elite players. That is gone. You know, they've been clinging to a previous version of what they were. And we dug into this last week. Understandably, I understand how you get there with the rationalization. Seattle's kind of different in that it's completely turned over. Like, this isn't them clinging to the Legion of Boom era. The only guy that's still there outside of Russell Wilson is Bobby Wagner. That's it. Other than that, they have turned this over and tried to start anew. And I th- that's why I think it's a little bit different. We're also a year removed from them winning 12 games and Russ being the MVP for the first half of the year. I think they've definitely bumped up against a ceiling in Seattle with what the Russell Wilson offense is and where that can bring you and what its limitations are. And I think that is as much of a reason and argument for why it might be time to search out a new path as whatever Pete Carroll's message is. I think there's a lot to chew on there, but I think the Zimmer thing is more so it might just be time to start over because we've really, really hit our ceiling here and it's there's no path out of this. Yeah, and to the Zimmer point, as you said, he's had eight years. Like typically the coaches that get the elongated stretches, like they've had the four to five years of being tops in the league and, you know, knocking on the Super Bowl's door, if not getting there and winning it. And or they're also like everyone loves them. They're great to be around. Like people love it. But like that's not Zimmer's reputation. You know, he's a bit grouchy. He, you know, can be tough at times. I, I don't think people are, you know, saying, oh, we need to keep him around for morale and stuff. You know, he's uh, someone that I can definitely see. Yeah, you know, I think that's why it took him a while to get a head job because, you know, he's stubborn and, you know, maybe he didn't interview the best and all those things. So, yeah, Caldwell, like, is a great guy. Everyone loves him. I think, you know, obviously the perception is just he's a little bit too meek and doesn't quite, you know, bring the, the fire and the juice. And, you know, to Pete Carroll's point, they got a new offensive coordinator. Like you kind of hope this was the year, you know, I think whatever gain the offense has gotten, you know, it's kind of been negated by the injuries and also kind of schematic change. You know, as Pete Carroll said, going into this year, like we don't want to see cover two. Like we have to run the ball well enough to take teams out of cover two. And then we can go attack, you know, single high safeties with, with the pass game. And, you know, so another emphasis on the run game. And again, that's, you know, his mantra, but they got a new offensive coordinator. They got a new voice in there. And so, you know, you would have liked to see this boost on offense and, you know, potentially the second half of the year, maybe we'll see it and, and Russ gets fully healthy. But offensively, they've got all the weapons. It should be good. You know, as you said, defensively, it's all turned over. The personnel is nowhere near what it used to be. And so, you know, we're kind of okay with the defense not being as good as it used to. It's the offense that we're looking towards to really fuel it. And, everything's set up for them to be you know the rams the chiefs you know the bills one of these teams that well i shouldn't say the bills this year but bills last year that is led by the offense it's a top five offense that's what drives the team and the defense is good enough to allow them to win you know 12 13 14 games for whatever reason that just hasn't been the case this year all right we'll dig into plenty more seahawks panic here over the next half of the season i'm very sure of it Speaking of panic, let's get to some Chargers concerns. There were several of them. Got multiple questions about some of the Chargers struggles here over the last few weeks. Balen Strand says, from the perspective of, of fans, it seems most of the blame is coming down to two things. Everyone knows how to beat Staley's defense, and he doesn't have the depth of players yet to make up for it. But also, Joe Lombardi has lost his gutsy calls. When they were winning, he was calling shot after shot. Herbert was on fire. Now that they're losing because of the defense not being able to pick up the slack, he's being conservative and calling all of these short passes, and Herbert looks like he's back at Oregon again, which just puts more pressure on the defense. Matt Profilio wrote, 
For the third time in the last four weeks, Chargers offense seemingly could not get anything going leading to a loss. A lot of Chargers fans want to place the blame on Joe Lombardi's frustrating offensive scheming and play calling. And while I agree that is the problem, I think there are other factors making it worse. I know pass protection and O-line have been poor at times. It seems like the execution is lacking in key moments. Is it too early to be thinking about a new offensive coordinator? Interesting to hear what you guys are seeing and thinking about. Nate and I have talked about this a little bit. I think that I have a pretty good like pretty strong opinion about what the issues have been over the last month or so i'm curious as another outside voice here somebody who knows what he's looking at what you think is plaguing the chargers offense right now yeah i was gonna say i mean you're the one that wrote the lombardi article and the herbert article so you probably have a, a better sense of the inner workings than anybody but you know again it gets back to offensive line like one of the things coming into the year it was the improved offensive line you know slater's been as good as advertised uh oday bushi was lighting up at right guard you know Bulaga was back at right tackle and that solidified things you know we keep kind of harping on the same message here throughout the episode that you know if the o-line's doing well and it allows the offense to run in full it allows those downfield passes it gives you know the quarterback confidence in the play action game that pays dividends well the right tackle and right guard have been out for the last month and now you know you're playing with backups on that side and you know you're going against other good teams and they've got good rushers and you know that's been an issue for it and so Maybe that has influenced the play calling a little bit that, hey, we can't drive the ball down the field like we used to because we can't hold up for four or five seconds. You know, that was kind of the funny thing about the Mahomes Super Bowl, you know, wasp play is in that thing. He's talking to the enemy and he says, hey, do we have time to run wasp? Which means is my O-line going to block long enough for this play to develop? Which is, you know, kind of the funny (laughs) thing as an offense lineman to hear. But I mean, he was right. I mean, we were having a tough go, especially with Bosa and that's the type of thing that if the coordinator if the team doesn't trust that the o-line can hold up and you can no longer drive the ball down the field you come you be you become predictable and now you get into this rut of you know running the ball and short passes and screens and stuff and you know i think everyone's favorite thing is herbert on the little half boot to the right he gets set up the cannon gets freaking loaded up and he just launches it 60 yards to the across the hash on the left side and you know that's what we want to see and you know, those are kind of ways to scheme up, you know, some protection help as well. But I still see him making those throws and them, you know, doing it. I just think defenses have kind of caught on in the way they've caught on to Mahomes and the Chiefs. That like, all right, you know, that's what's going to drive your offense. Well, we'll take it away. And now we're going to force you into doing these, you know, kind of smaller things as well. I feel like the problem is, and this is what we've talked about on the show before, everything has compressed way too much. And I feel like it's compressed for a few different reasons. One, there isn't the pass protection. It, one of the first things that offensive coaches do as an outside observer, when you can't protect, you start condensing the offense. You start wanting to get the ball out of the quarterback's hands quicker. When you start doing that, defenses start sitting on stuff and your problems start to compound. And I think that's when you see an offense just completely lose itself. A really good example to me is last year's Eagles. When you watch last year's Eagles play, that's what it felt like. And there are a couple other reasons for this. I think that Joe Lombardi is tuned into that sort of quick game-based offense because he was working with Drew Brees for the last few years. Like That is something he understands extremely well. It is adjacent to the offense that they brought in this year. It wasn't supposed to look like the 2020 Saints, but because they can't protect and because I think that that's his comfort zone, it's easy to drift back into that stuff. The third part of this is that they have no speed. There is no speed on that team. Like Jalen Guyton is really their only take the top off the defense guy. And when you want to play 
in as many heavy personnel packages as they do with a fullback and a tight end because that's what the Saints have always done. You want to be hard to play against. You want to be hard to game plan for. So you're going to, you're going to be playing in all of these heavy personnel packages with these condensed formations. You don't have anybody to take the top off. You're not threatening defenses when it's Keenan Allen and Mike Williams. So you can't protect, you have no speed, and you have a play caller who's comfortable just condensing the offense when he needs to go to something. And I think that's how you end up with this final product. You have a guy with, I would say, maybe the best arm in the entire league. I, I, I'm comfortable putting him in that uh-huh. category. Like it's it's him and Pat and you know maybe a couple other guys. When you have that guy averaging 7.2 intended air yards per target, here are the guys that are throwing the ball shallower on an average basis than Justin Herbert this year. You ready? I'm ready. Matt Ryan, Kirk Cousins, Ben Roethlisberger, Jared Goff, Mike White. End of list. Woof. That's bad. <laughs> that's, that's bad. Tua is averaging a higher average depth of target this season than Justin Herbert. That's a problem. I understand how we got to this problem, but it is still a huge issue. I think they need to find ways to wad it up, more max protection, push the ball down the field. But when you have no speed to threaten teams in those sort of sets, it becomes really hard to play like that. So it just I understand how these things have kind of piled on top of each other to give them a lack of answers right now. You know, the lack of speed is something I had included on. You know, I kind of got there with the first two points about the protection and, um, you know, just kind of reverting back towards what you're comfortable with as a, as a coordinator. But, you know, you just think, oh, the Keenan Allen, awesome. You know, Mike Williams, he's been great. You know, Eckler's done really good things, run and pass game. And they've got these guys who are individually really good players. But as you said, they don't necessarily have chief speed or, you know, speed of the Ravens or some of these other teams that really allow you to attack vertically. Like it's great to, you know, scheme up vertical uh, plays and stuff. I mean, Again, that's why Deshaun Jackson still gets the job and, you know, he caught one yesterday and then gave it back to us, which was nice. But, you know, he's the guy that takes the top <laughs> off and teams know when he's out there, I better defend 50 plus yards deep. And yeah, to your point, I mean, if you're doing max protection and eight guys are in and there's only two guys on routes, well, there's five or six guys covering only two receivers. And if they're not threatened by anything past 30 yards, you know, both guys are getting triple covered. So all those plays that we love to see of, of Herbert, you know, loading the cannon and, and letting it fly. Yeah, those just aren't there anymore. And it's interesting. I mean, I'd, I'd have to imagine they can kind of pinpoint that and, and realize what's going on. You know, speed you're not going to get throughout the season, especially past the trade deadline. So that's something they have to contend with. You know, they worked around Drew Brees' arm strength for forever in terms of, you know, the offensive coordinator. And I'd imagine he's able to, you know, kind of work around this as well. So it'll be interesting to see. You know, I know weirdly, like defensively, they're doing worse than they are offensively, even though, you know, it seems like, Herbert hasn't you know progressed and that's the frustrating part but like to that you know questioner's point about Staley like I don't think the league has figured out you know how to go against him uh it's just he doesn't quite have the horses right now I want to go back and watch their watch their defense because I've been focusing more on their offense when it comes to rewatches it's hard to really get a sense for what they're doing on defense without seeing the tape just because where the safeties are. I mean, just watching the structure of defense is difficult. That's something that I'm going to make a point of here over the next couple of weeks because I don't really feel like I'm in a place to comment on it with any sort of authority just because I haven't rewatched it here over the last few weeks. All right, speaking of Deshaun giving you guys one yesterday, Alex Boyer asks, 
Outside of the first half against the Titans, which was a disaster, the Chiefs have quietly strung together several strong defensive performances since the Washington game in Week 6. Prior to last night's game, it was easy to discredit those performances because of the opposing quarterbacks. But last night, the Chiefs more or less shut down the Ravers' offense. They were able to generate pressure with just four, thank you Melvin Ingram, and even look good in coverage. Tyra Matthew was great on Darren Waller. You mentioned on the podcast that the Chiefs only need a defense that isn't the worst in the league. But is there a chance the defense could be good? If so, what has fueled this turnaround? Is it just personnel, or is there a schematic change that I've overlooked? I feel like you are much better set up to answer this question than I am. It's a little bit personnel. I mean, obviously, we know, uh, you know, the guy who's been getting most of the heat for the defense is Dan Sorensen, and he has not had the best year, you know, covering guys in his, you know, original role as a safety. And so he's playing a lot less, and they've got, you know, Tyron and Juan Thornhill as the primary safeties. You know, coverage wise, they had a couple injuries to, you know, top guys earlier in the year. So, you know, kind of the third, fourth guys that maybe don't get quite as many snaps, they had to be starters. And so I think they've got, you know, about four guys now who can, you know, cover at a pretty solid level. But as you said, I mean, the key to me is the defensive line in the front four. I mean, everything's driven off of what those guys do. Chris Jones is back at three tech. He beats the guard pretty much every single play. Uh, (laughs) I hope they leave him there for forever you know maybe twice a game he gets to go over the defensive uh over to play defensive end gets to you know be in a little bit more space and try to rush on a tackle just to make him happy but he's clearly best as a three tech you know frank clark is playing a lot better you know i think he he said i mean he has some stuff going on behind the scenes i mean we never quite know what guys are going through with their their family their personal life you know there's a lot of stressors on players and it does affect guys at times i mean that's your life that's what you go home to every day so you know a a negative thing there can can have some impact and you know frank was also coming off an injury so he didn't really have a training camp like he has kind of gone through training camp you know we talked about trent brown you know getting alternated throughout a game you know defensive end gets rotated as well and so now frank is you know fully in game shape and melvin ingram provided a huge boost you know he looks awesome i kind of wish that they played him more because i think he looks you know so good and i think playing you know the giants and the you know Washington football team and uh, Jordan Love you know Packers offense obviously you know quality of competition not quite as good and sometimes that's what you need to kind of get right and start feeling good and the confidence you know starts to to flow and you know defense is so emotional and so you know kind of mentally driven that it doesn't really matter where that confidence comes from as long as you have it and I think you know those couple games definitely had the defense feeling better about themselves and about things in general you know a couple personnel tweaks from Spags you know last night didn't seem to be quite as much of the cover zero stuff but you know we could go a lot of it and just saying screw it you know we're going to be aggressive we're going to go back to doing what we love to do and you don't have to do it when guys are rushing four. And so now he trusts his front four a little more and they don't have to so you've got like Spags's blitz inventory that you know, teams were preparing for all week. And now he's got the ability to, you know, kind of just sit back and, and play some of the more vanilla coverages and rush for and have fun with that. So it's cool to see. Um, this definitely is trending in the right direction to being, you know, not just not the worst defense in the NFL, but actually a good defense. <laughs> and again, they, they shut down a quarterback who's been playing really well. So we'll see this week, a huge, huge test against the Cowboys. Uh, that's going to be a, a big game for what a game. I know it's going to be pretty exciting. So we'll know, uh, we'll know if the defense is real or not after that one. When you've been around defenses, because you guys, it ran the gamut during your time in Kansas city. There were years where you guys were down near the bottom of the league. There were years where you guys had a pretty good defense. Can you sense being around those guys when that confidence starts to build? 
Can can you just feel that shift with an entire unit, even over the course of a given year? Yeah, it's pretty much when they're talking smack when they're not playing super well. Uh, that's when you know that they're going to be good because they have the confidence. They think they're playing well. Like they trust themselves. You know, there's that. That's like Frank out there. It doesn't matter how he's playing. Like if he's himself and he's feeling right, like he's talking, you know, he's having fun. Um, so when he's getting back to that and he's got a swag back, like that's when you know he's bringing it. You know, his energy rubs off on the other defensive linemen. So for the most part, like you can tell, like I said, it's it's all energy and kind of passion driven from a defense. And so when a game starts and you know there's not much energy, there's not much juice, um, you can tell that maybe that isn't quite the game uh, for the defense. But when you know pregame's pretty hyped and you know everyone's uh, having a good time and, and ready to go, and it seems like people are locked in, uh, that's for sure when you know you have a sense that the defense is on their uh, on their game. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. All right, let's get to our next voicemail. This is an interesting idea. I want to kind of twist it a little bit. You guys will see what I mean. Hey, Robert, fan of the show. Uh, hope this makes sense. I had this theory when Jameis Winston was playing for the Buccaneers that all of a sudden, one off season, I would just hear from friends or people on TV that Jameis was going to make the jump this year, and everyone kept repeating it. But I couldn't recall anyone who had ever actually watched a Buccaneers game. They were just never relevant. They were never on one of the TVs you turned on. And so we all just created these opinions about the player without having him ever uh, play a game. I think the same thing is happening with Teddy Bridgewater in his career. We say he's a good player or not a good player. We actually don't know. We haven't watched. Are there other players like this in the league? Or can you think about other players from the past where it just seemed like there was a collective opinion about it, but people might not necessarily have ever actually watched him play? All right. I think this does happen, and I actually think it's really funny. I think another really good example of this is Andy Dalton. I don't think anyone actually watched Bengals games during Andy Dalton's career, but people had very strong opinions about what sort of quarterback Andy Dalton is. I wanted to use you while you were here, though. First of all, do you have any other examples of that? Do you think there are guys that just people never watched? Oh, for sure. Honestly, my mind went to like Kirk Cousins because I feel like when he has Great these example. games where he's 33 for 38 for 410 yards and stuff and everyone's like, oh, his stats are fantastic, blah, blah, blah. And then there's like the one or two people who actually watch the game on Twitter being like, psst, psst. Hey guys, I watched the game. It's not great. <laughs> like, I feel like he's a really good one that people think more favorably of him when they see the good stats because that offense produces good stats. So a guy like that, you know, absolutely. And I do think that those people exist out there and then it kind of becomes like, the thing that NFL Twitter runs with and, you know, people just go from there. I wanted to ask you sort of something that's next to this. Were there guys over the course of your career that when you were preparing for them, when you were game planning for them, you were worried about them? Like they took up a lot of space in your mind that the general public might not think about guys that they just would never consider superstar level players, like really, really good players that you felt like did not get enough recognition. 
Yeah, Melvin Ingram to go back to him. You know, yeah, I always thought I, I he was, was going to ask you about that. Dude, yeah. he's so good, and <laughs> he didn't get like the sack numbers. You know, I think the poster child for that is probably Brandon Graham, of you know just kind of being a beast on the defensive line and not quite having the sack numbers to make everyone talk about you and you know to be an all pro and those things. Um, you know, typically teams have like the third or fourth rusher who's got some juice and looks good and does some, you know, flashy things. And that's a guy that you haven't faced quite as much. Like, obviously I go into a game against Denver. Like I'm worried about Vaughn. He's the thing I'm thinking about all week, but like, you know, the past few years, Malik Reed has played really well too. And, you know, he's had some good plays and he kind of looks like a little Vaughn out there. He wears the same sleeves and everything and same body type (laughs) and moves and stuff. And so, you know, that's a guy that like, Oh, well he's actually like, you know, probably a quality starter if he got the chance to start and you know he's doing good things as a backup um you know there's obviously daniel hunter everyone knows about him now but he's a guy that from you know kind of early on the offensive line of people definitely knew uh, you know who he was and uh you know kind of the crazy things he can do but there's always there's always guys like that i mean it's Again, if you're not studying the game, especially, you know, so few people probably have the ability to look at it from the offense line perspective and know what to look for and see a guy who, you know, kind of transcends his his status. And so there's always guys like that. I mean, it's also kind of like trait based, like you go into a week and it's like, okay, well, this guy looks really strong. And like, yeah, there's a way to stop a, a guy who's only strong, but it's like, all right, well, he's really strong. And you go into a game and you play him and you had a really good game against him, but you're like, man, that dude was strong. Uh, I that's my. T- I want to make a team of just the dudes who it's a shitty day at the office. Like who are the worst the guys? Justin just Smith eat- All-Stars? Yeah, that's exactly right. And for me, Bakhtiari has said to me that like the two guys that he th- kind of throws in that category, Everson Griffin was just, it's miserable. Like just playing against Everson Griffin for 70 plays is a terrible week. Zadarius Smith is like that, where it's 275 pounds. He's going all out every single play. You were going to leave that game in a lot of pain, even if you didn't give up any sacks. Like that type of player, Cam Hayward. If you were an interior offensive lineman and you had to play against Cam Hayward for an entire day, I just can't imagine that's an enjoyable experience for anybody. No, definitely not. And, you know, sometimes the the worst guy to go against is like the second or third stringer who's playing in place of the starter and he just throws his body in there and just doesn't care. And he's trying to like, you know, (laughs) prove that he's a starter and, you know, the roster spot and all that. It's like the preseason when you have to go against like the third string guys who don't really know what to do and they don't really have any respect for (laughs) their body and their heads and they just kind of throw themselves out there. But in terms of like the quality guys, I mean, yeah, like going against a guy like Bosa, you know, he's physical every single play. You know, Khalil Mack is physical every single play. Those guys are really not fun. I think for the most part, that style of defensive end, like the Justin Smith or like the old school kind of headbanger, like even Everson Griffin, that doesn't exist quite so much anymore because passing is so prevalent that like you don't really have even like the strong side defensive end who's over the tight end that's more of like a headbanger. Like William Golston was that guy for a while in Tampa and he wasn't super successful at true defensive end in a four three. And then they got to kick him inside and in, in the Todd Bowles game and play three tech. And, you know, now he's thriving and he's a, a really good player. And, you know, he's a guy that was a little bit out of position at a true defensive end, but definitely makes more sense on the inside. And so it's more the, the interior guys, I think that uh, are the, the long day uh, of players that an offensive lineman doesn't necessarily want to see. But every now and again, you get that defensive end who, just doesn't have the athletic profile to really rush the way a, a guy should rush and kind of makes it a more physical game. And that's, uh, 
it's easy because, you know, again, if a guy really can only do power, that's, that's something that's relatively easy to stop, but it's not enjoyable. It's not fun. And uh, <laughs> that was something that I didn't necessarily enjoy. All right, let's get to our last voicemail here. And I want to chew on this in a few different ways. Hey, Robert, this is Connor from Scram. Um, I am just sitting here in my car after the Colts for abysmal performance yesterday, barely eking out against the Jaguars. And I just, I just cannot fathom that Carson Wentz is a guy going forward. Uh, what do you think the Colts should do as they seem we're going to be losing a first-round pick? I just think it's time to move on. I think he's not – I know he's not the answer. So what should the Colts do probably without a first-round pick next year to find the answer? Love the show. Keep it up. Thank you. First things first, Carson Wentz is going to be the Colts quarterback next year. <laughs> they are not moving on from Carson Wentz. He has played well enough with the way that they've committed to this for him to be their quarterback. But – I wanted to talk about this because we got several questions about what the Browns should do with Baker Mayfield. Sam Bornhorst, Doug Fetro or Fetro, Thomas Barclay, all of them asked what Baker's future should be. And I wanted to pair it with this Carson Wentz question because I think it speaks to a larger conversation about what teams should be doing when they don't have a viable path to a high-quality quarterback prospect. When you don't have an inroad to a top 10 pick or a clear upgrade or a clear reset point at that position, what should you do? And it's a really, really difficult question to answer because most teams in the league are in this situation. We've got, we talked already on the show about teams with a Jared Goff or a Kirk Cousins or a Jimmy Garoppolo and what you're supposed to do when you're one of those teams. And you have an interesting kind of view on this in a couple different ways. One, you were in Cleveland. You watched the quarterback turnover there. And Baker Mayfield, for whatever his shortcomings are, has provided them stability that they have lacked at that position. You also were in a place where a team looked at their quarterback situation and said, we need to be better than this if we're going to hit our ceiling. And the Chiefs traded up for Patrick Mahomes. So as somebody who's kind of been in situations that resemble this in one way or another, what is it like when you know that you don't have an elite quarterback and what do you think teams in that position should try to be doing? Well, what they should be doing is trying to find the elite quarterback. I mean, that's abundantly clear. At what clear. cost though, right? At what cost? That's the question. Right. So that's what gets back to like, what's an elite quarterback? What do you need, you know, in- infrastructure wise around him? You know, the reason that people aren't sold on Baker is because he's got an incredible infrastructure. He has now the highest paid offensive line in football and the best offensive line coach and two of the best four or five running backs in football and you know good skill players and and receivers one of the best play callers as a you know head coach and offensive coordinator the defense has probably the defensive player of the year this year and they've got you know some other pieces and so he's in this awesome situation and he just can't elevate that team on his own you know he's a guy that when everything's going well he's playing well and the team rolls and no one is necessarily saying, oh, well, you know, it's because of Baker. It's, oh, the run game and the offensive line and this and that. And Baker also looked well or looked good. And, you know, he's playing well, blah, blah, blah. But whenever those things falter, it's just like, okay, well, he's not the guy that can elevate the team on the on the bad day and put a team on his back the way you would, you know, associate a Brady or a Mahomes or a Rodgers, you know, these quarterbacks that can lift the talent level of their team. And that's what you need in your quarterback when he's taken up. 40% of the cap. You know, these guys are making so much that if you're going to pay them as a top quarterback, and again, now there's no tiers. You're either a top paid quarterback or you're on your rookie contract. There's not really, I mean, there's a few guys. I'm, I'm saying that a little facetiously, but like 
There's no That's longer pretty like, much how it is. It's, yeah, there's there, no those longer two like the Alex Smith exists. contract. There's not you know these kind of mid level twenty to twenty five million dollar quarterbacks who are above average starters but below the top tier. And so to commit 40 plus million to Baker every year, and then that's 40% of your cap. And he's not a guy that can elevate the other, you know, I guess it's 20% of your cap, but he's not a guy that can elevate the other 80% of the cap and, you know, raise, you know, kind of the, the floor of the team on his own. That's tough to do. So I think it's weirdly a combination of the two that you should try to make your team as good as you can around the quarterback so that you can have, you know, the Browns level of success with a guy who's not, you know, say a top 10 or 15 guy in the league. But when the opportunity presents itself, you go find the guy who is a top eight, a top five quarterback. And now that makes you a Super Bowl champ. You know, that's the Rams. They became a Super Bowl favorite because they got a quarterback who was not, you know, he never really makes anyone's top three or top four or five list, but he's consistently, you know, top six to eight to nine, to 10 quarterback. And that single guy was what made, you know, Rams fans and everyone so excited and you know, kind of solidified them as a Super Bowl favorite coming into the year. So that's a situation where infrastructure is great. It kind of run its course with a quarterback. You make, you know, I would say it's a smart decision to move on and to upgrade and upgrade in a major way to a you know top eight quarterback. And he lifts the team and, and they look awesome. The risky part is obviously the draft. And so that's where, you know, the, the, well, the Bears are different, but the 49ers, you know, the, the Chiefs trading draft capital to select a guy to be, you know, who replaces a decent quarterback and Alex Smith's case, like a good quarterback. That's where it gets a lot trickier. And that's where what the Chiefs did is exceedingly rare to, you know, replace a, a top 12 to 15 quarterback with the best quarterback. I mean, that's really, really difficult. You look at this year's draft, you know, it's only been 10 weeks, but the fifth quarterback taken has been the best quarterback so far. So it's like going back towards, all right, well, you know, these GMs are probably 50% at best on the quarterbacks. And now you're trading, you know, three years worth of first rounders to upgrade from the 15th best quarterback to someone you think could be a top five quarterback, but you think he can, he hasn't proven it. You have to, you know, kind of manage that. And so it's risky to me, the best long-term success in the NFL is having a top five quarterback. You know, you see that all the time. Aaron Rodgers guarantees 12 wins. You know, Tom Brady guarantees 12 wins. Mahomes pretty much guarantees 12 wins. You know, these guys guarantee a certain floor to the team, and the floor is one of the best three teams in your conference and a deep playoff run. That's what you want, and then you can build a team around that guy. Doing it the other way is, you know, quote-unquote better in terms of the overall roster and again the Browns on paper have one of the most well-rounded rosters but at the end of the day they go into a playoff game you're taking Brady you're taking Mahomes you're taking Rodgers like you're not picking the Browns because the other team has the elite quarterback and so I think everything should be towards getting the elite quarterback when you're trading for a Stafford or Rodgers or these guys who are getting into their 30s and you know have some injury history and don't have the 10-year window that's when you have to you know, kind of figure out what the right compensation is. Compensation is. Um, I think that's why Watson is so intriguing. If again, the legal stuff, I'm not commenting on that. But in terms of you know a, a 25 or 26 year old guy who can be the face of the franchise for 10 plus years, a situation like that is much different to me. That's a no brainer. You go get you know a quarterback who has a clean record and all that stuff all the time. Um, trading for the older guy to you know kind of cram it into a, a three year window. I still like that. Like you're playing to win the Super Bowl. You're not playing to exist. You're playing to win the Super Bowl. So find a guy that gets you a Super Bowl. 
I agree. I, I think that the question to me is not whether that proposition is worth it. It's how available those sorts of guys are. There is not a Stafford every offseason. There is not that type of talent available, even in the trade market, every offseason. Maybe this spring will be different because maybe Rodgers and Wilson will be available. And we, obviously, the Watson situation is an entirely different consideration. But if Rodgers stays, maybe it's just Russell Wilson. I mean, the Browns probably trade for Russell Wilson, right? Russell Wilson is an upgrade over Baker Mayfield. But if Wilson doesn't, stay there or there's a team like the Eagles who can give up way more than the Browns are able to give up and that pool starts to dry up then then where are you left and that's the that to me that is the consideration with the Baker Mayfield thing I totally support watching what he's been this year while playing hurt and just coming to the conclusion of he's not good enough when you look at the other guys around the league he's not good enough the Rams coming to that conclusion about Jared Goff has a chance to transform their franchise and selling yourself or talking yourself into a guy who's going to create that ceiling for you is one of the most dangerous things you can do in my mind. But where does the upgrade happen? Is there somebody like just Matthew Stafford available? You don't have a path to necessarily go get that guy in the draft. That's where it becomes dicey. So if you're the Browns and you're sitting there this spring, here's I'll ask you this. Do you think Derek Carr is better than Baker Mayfield? A guy like that. So like if, if uh, that to me, that's the guy I keep coming back to. Some of the throws he made yesterday, even in that game, where I, I, he made a couple. That throw to Deshaun Jackson is like silly shit, <laughs> and there he he is capable of that. And I'm looking at the way that he's played, and maybe it's a guy like that that might be available and might give them an upgrade and might allow them to maximize the roster that they have right now. But I don't think the Stafford trade is going to be on the table for most teams in a given spring. And that's where it becomes really, really difficult. Yeah, because it's tough to have, you know, a top five quarterback that has slipped a little bit, mostly based off of his surroundings, that a team is willing to move on. Like that just like you said, guys aren't available, let alone that specific combination of kind of an undervalued asset at the time. Yeah, the the Browns thing is really interesting because they're a good team. They're a playoff team. They're going to play well enough to put themselves in a situation to not have the draft capital to go find that guy. So they have to, you know, kind of figure out the method to trade for a car who, again, you think that the situation elevates him. Um, you know, he's played pretty well for the majority of the season. He's had a lot of other, you know, good stretches throughout his career. He's a guy that people aren't totally sold on as, you know, a bona fide top tier quarterback in the NFL, you know, finding, you know, these other guys that maybe it's, you know, the one year of Case Keenum that you kind of catch fire or this other guy became a free agent or we can have him for 15 million and, you know, we kind of harness, you know, our infrastructure upgrade with him and get the best year out of him and let him go until you just kind of buy time until you can find that top guy. And yeah, it's a difficult situation. I think that's why they're doubling down on the offensive line and kind of on the other positions because they understand they don't necessarily have the quarterback they're willing to give 40 million to they also don't have the capital to get a guy who's markedly better than him off the bat and so they're in this weird situation that it kind of makes sense to go with the offensive line go with the infrastructure put the money into that and then you know hope you can find a low-level guy in free agency or maybe you know a late first draft pick that kind of falls through or, or someone else you know it kind of gets back to the theory of like should you just take a quarterback every year, whether it's, you know, fourth, fifth, sixth, seventh round? You know, a lot of teams believe in that. 
And, you know, over a four year cycle, you just have to develop one of those guys and, you know, maybe he becomes league average or slightly better. And, you know, you've gotten him on a, a better than not deal and he can kind of keep things rolling. The two guys, if I were a Browns fan, that I would be looking at or thinking about this spring that I think would be relatively doable are Derek Carr and Matt Ryan. Uh, those are the two guys that I'm I would not, have in mind. The Matt Ryan thing. It's it. I listen. He's going to be 37. It's up and down. I think Matt Ryan right now is definitely much better than Baker Mayfield. Yeah, I mean, there's definitely a track record. He's got a lot more experience. He's run a similar system with great success. I guess it's like is 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 the upgrade for you like the first and second down ahead of the sticks, or is it the third down and the two minute drill? Because to me, that's Baker's you know deficiency is that it's third and five plus or he's in a situation where the team has to throw the ball, you know, he's not the guy that can elevate that team and make those throws on a consistent basis. To me, it's just decision-making. It's just, are you seeing things the right way? Is every single route on a given play live? Are you able to progress through things? It's, it's a million different things. I would love to see this offense run with one better receiving talent, Right, like it, the Hodel thing, whatever. I think they're going to have money to potentially upgrade those spots next year. So if they have, I keep saying Chris Godwin, but somebody like a Chris Godwin, and then you have all the tight ends, and you have the running backs, and you have a guy like Matt Ryan who can just keep the train on the tracks, what does this offense look like? I think it looks considerably better. The Ryan thing is going to be a question of price, all of that stuff. But I think that is the ballpark I'd be shopping in if I were a Browns fan, I wouldn't be like, oh, let's it's Aaron Rodgers or bust because I feel like that is going to leave people feeling disappointed. Yeah. And especially when you have the 23rd pick in the draft, like teams will accept Rodgers or I should say teams, the Packers, like, you know, maybe it's three first round picks, but one of those has to be a top five guy that you can leverage into, you know, a franchise player at some position or a quarterback. Like that's a pre- prerequisite for trading for a Rodgers or a Wilson having the 23rd pick and future first when you're expected to be a good team and then you're landing a quarterback that's going to guarantee that the picks are you know 28 or to 32 that's not a that you'd have to give up four or five first round picks to make that happen so it's interesting i mean of those two i'd for sure go for Carr in that situation he's younger you know i think he can do more for an offense than than ryan can i know that you know ryan has been there done that you know he's a ton of experience and success and as you said you know he kind of runs the offense the way the coordinator seeing it. You know, I think that's again, to go back to golf and McVay, like that's kind of the breaking point I think is when golf wasn't thinking the way McVay would think on the, the, the field. And so you've got a guy who's like, do this, do that, do this, do that. And the quarterback's doing that. And then that, and then that, and then that, and it's not following the progression of, you know, what the offensive mind is seeing and the rhythm that they're feeling. That's where the dis- disconnect happens. So It'd be interesting. I mean, I think also Carr's going to com- command a much higher price. And so maybe you are kind of forced to do a, a Matt Ryan trade just because, again, they won't have the compensation because they've played themselves out of having, you know, compensation to go get a top guy. Baker Mayfield is has a cap of $18.9 million next year. Think about what the Panthers are willing Sam to pay. Sam Darnold. Think, think about what the Panthers are willing to pay Sam Darnold, right? Baker Mayfield, for all of his faults, is a functional NFL quarterback for the most part. Yeah. If you threw Baker Mayfield onto a team and you were just looking for a one-year stopgap option, 2022, $18.9 million is a reasonable price to pay. And that's 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 the hard thing with him is because he is a functional quarterback. It's not like 
he's a bad quarterback in a great situation. Like he's still solid. It's just not this top level that you aspire for him to be and a top pick to be and what you want as the guy you're paying 40 million to. And that's why if you were a team that just needed a quarterback for a year, I think you could talk yourself into trading for Baker Mayfield. His contract, if it's traded away, they pay nothing. And they have a lot of financial flexibility next year. So there's just a lot of different avenues I think they could go down. The draft is probably off the table. But if they have the 23rd overall pick next year, the Raiders are looking at a new coaching staff, a new GM potentially, a reset. Would you trade the 23rd overall pick for Derek Carr? I think the answer is yes. Oh, if you're the Browns, yeah. But there's no way the Raiders accept that. I mean... All right, what if it's two first-round picks? Would you trade two first-round picks right now if you were Cleveland for Derek Carr this offseason? If you're Cleveland, yeah. If you're the Raiders, I wouldn't accept that because I feel like... That's what Stafford went for. Yeah, but I feel like Carr, because of the age, is a little more projection to it and that he's a guy that's shown like when everything's going well, Carr has shown his ceiling is much higher than Mayfield's. Because, you know, Carr has those stretches of 400 plus yard games and things are awesome. And he's doing the things from the pocket that you want to see in a, in a quarterback. You flip those two quarterbacks this second and now Mayfield has to run Carr's offense. I think that's a much different story. And, you know, Carr and Stefanski's offense is going to be elevated. And so I think Carr has been asked to do more. It's Gruden's offense. It's more of the traditional kind of drop back what you want to see in a prototypical quarterback. And so I think his ceiling is higher for sure but his floor is also much higher because he's doing things at a you know a bit more advanced level than a guy like baker's asked to do we're not disagreeing about that i'm just wondering what the price would be if i were the browns i would look at what the rams pay for stafford and i would say they included golf in that deal and that contract in that deal two first round picks is more than fair or well, a if one you're, if two you're, or if something you, right so if you're vegas though and you're saying i'm trading car for the 23rd pick this year and the 25th pick next year I don't think that gets it done. I'm saying if I'm the Browns, I make that trade 10 out of 10 times. If I'm the Raiders, I make it 0 out of 10 times. So I think that's the impasse. It's like, if you're the Browns, do you do a third pick? Do you do the 2024 first round pick? Jeez. I'm just saying, I mean, if you have, would you say Carr is a top 8 quarterback or top 10 quarterback? I'd say he's right around the top 10. Right. And that's that gets back to this conversation. It's like, where's the cutoff point? What kind of guy do you need? But I do think these are the questions that the Browns are going to have to ask themselves. Yeah, and and again, that that's my point about Stafford is that was such a specific situation that he was like undervalued at the time because of an injury, because of the team situation, because of the new staff that wanted to kind of clean house. Like it's tough to get a guy like that undervalued. Again, I think Carr is going to go for market value and market value for a guy like that is three first round picks at least. So that's kind of that's what I'm, I'm hoping for is that there's a new staff and there's a new GM and hoping for it. I'm that's if there's a new staff and a I new GM, I think that is the world where he could be available for a similar price. But I, again, I think that is the type again, of guy. If you're, that, if you're going into that situation, I think you look at it and you say, all right, we've got a quarterback. We feel really good about We've got a top 10 quarterback. We keep him <laughs> like that's not the guy you move I, that's on what from. I would do. Per, trust me, that's what I would do. But I think if you're looking for diminished assets, those are the places you can look for them is when people are turning over the same with Matt Ryan. Maybe there's a world where the Falcons want to move on from Matt Ryan because it's a new staff. They didn't they didn't bring him in. He's older. They want to See, be rebuilding. But that's when I think he's going to go for way less because he's older. I don't think he's seen as good as Carr, and his contract sucks, and so you're taking on this big contract. And so 
that's a situation that maybe, you know, a first and a third or a second round pick or something. I think he's a guy, again, that's why I thought it made sense for the Browns to go after him just in terms of how much draft capital they have. Like he's much more available than Carr. I, I see Carr as an in his prime top 10 quarterback. And I think the market for that is three first round picks, whether it's a crappy GM that takes over and wants to clean house or not. Like I still think that's the market for it. I, I, you trade for Matt Ryan next year, $16.2 million base salary. What's the cap hit for the Falcons, though? Because I think that's part of the equation is that they have to eat a solid amount of, of cap to make it happen. I think that's why the trade didn't happen this year because they had to wait for some dead money to get eaten up. And then that's they- what, Yeah, that's why. They, there was no way they could move on from him this year. It just wasn't right. feasible with everything else that they had to deal with. Right, let's, so even, if, even if you're trading for him, like there's an inherent value that the Falcons have to eat in terms of, you know, 10 or 15 or 20 million in dead cap that, you know, kind of gets baked into the compensation package. If he gets traded, the, the, the Falcons have to eat $40 million in dead cap next year. 40? 40. But his cap right, so, is $48 so now, million. So if you're the Falcons, you're asking for three first rounders, you know, like, I'm just, I'm, I know that's not going to happen, but like, if you have to eat 40 million in cap, you can't just get a second rounder back. Here's the conclusion that we're coming to because we're going to wrap up. We could talk about this for six hours. You, sh- you should have a top five quarterback. Yeah, just, it's easy. <laughs> because I mean, we solved coaching he- a couple weeks ago. We solved being a GM this week. Just have a top five quarterback. When you don't have one, it's really hard. It's really hard to be a good team because this is what you have to do. You have to have these rationalizations and these conversations with yourself, and uh, it's just not a good place to be in. All right, buddy. That was great. I really appreciate it. Uh, guys, thank you so much for the questions, as always. Really, really do. Uh, it, it's sincerely, I appreciate you guys doing that. It makes it such a fun thing to, for us to do every single week. Mitch will be back next week for now. Please rate and review the podcast on your podcast platform of choice. That would mean a lot to me. Please subscribe to The Athletic, theathletic.com slash football show. We will be back tomorrow with a special guest. I'm not going to give it away quite yet. Until then, appreciate you guys listening. We'll talk to you soon. This was The Athletic Football Show.